Welcome back to the How to Sissan podcast, home to my original short fiction. I'm Chris, and this episode is about what happens when you follow the money. I've spoken about going into jobs for the wrong reasons. Hell, you could say that's the theme for this season, and you wouldn't be far off. Something I learned too late was that the more a job pays, the more is asked of you. I know well-paying jobs for little effort exist, but I sure haven't found them yet. This story is called Remember the Fallen. You find some strange jobs online. I once saw a posting for someone looking for company, like a professional friend or something. Someone to chat with, cook for. It didn't sound sexual. They did mention something about human contact, cuddling and all that. So, it could have been sexual, I guess. Mostly, it sounded lonely. I can't imagine being at a place in your life where you'd have to hire someone just to be around you. I wanted to reach out to the person that posted it, tell them it would be alright, and that they can go out and make their own friends. But I didn't. I figured someone looking for easy money would reach out before I could. I eventually found a job, working private security on someone's land, out near a town called Anchorage, like that famous one out in Alaska. They got a whole bunch of weird town names out there south of the city. Bigfoot, Coyote, like the animal, only spelled different. Of course, there's Poteet, where they have that strawberry festival or whatever. No experience necessary was in thick lettering at the beginning of the ad. That caught my attention. Well, that and the fact that they typed four dollar signs at the end of the posting. I called, and the owner came out to meet me on what wound up being my first day. There was a restaurant near the property, but the owner suggested we meet at a Dairy Queen about a 20-minute drive away in Poti proper. I thought we'd meet on the property, and I could walk around during the day, I told him over the phone. No need. Just call me when you get there and I'll set you up, the man had said through static. It just about sounded like he was running over the phone. He was breathing so hard. He must have been waiting for me, because an old white Dodge pickup rolled around in no time flat. It was an older guy, tall and thin, wearing a brown checkerboard shirt and a full mustache of silvery white that looked like it had never held color. I thought he'd dyed it, and almost said so, but thought better of it. Something like that could be mistaken for rudeness, and I could kiss this job goodbye. He looked like one of those country boys you see going into feed stores. Didn't even get out of his truck, either. He dropped the window, and as I approached, he looked me over with an arched eyebrow. Carnes? he asked, taking his eyes off me to survey the parking lot. He was real jittery-looking, like those people on street corners high on whatever drug they do these days, looking around and fretting about invisible things that aren't there, or that the rest of us can't see. Yes, sir, that's me. Are you Edwin? I responded, politely as I could. He didn't have to be respectful, I guess, since he wasn't the one looking for a job. The man tossed a key ring at my chest. Job's yours, he said, dropping the truck into gear. He whipped around to back out of the parking space, then turned to face me as if in slow motion. He stuck a hand out the window and curled a finger inward so I'd step in closer. His eyes were dilated, and his movements jerked like animals do before they die, when their bodies haven't quite got the message yet, and they kick and scratch at the air. Mister, 
I'd half expected you to run me over, given how bad you set to moving. Are you all right? I asked him. You seem awfully young for this type of job, son. You sure you don't want to get you something different? He told me with a straight face. His eyes set in cement, staring back into mine. There was a smell on him that was familiar, but that didn't make it good. I took some offense to his tone, but again, made my reply as respectful as I could. I ain't green, sir. I've been in the city for a while, but I'm real comfortable out in the brush. There ain't much out there that I haven't seen. The old man looked like a taxidermy deer head, with a far-off look. He nodded, and rubbed a flurry of white skin flakes off his chin, as if considering my answer. He pulled a notebook and an envelope from his breast pocket, and held it out for me. Everything you need to know is in the notebook. It's an overnight job, but you'll need to be out there the whole weekend. Just do as written, and you'll be all right. First payment is in the envelope. You'll meet me right here to drop off the keys on Monday morning, first thing. I opened the envelope to see several hundred-dollar bills tucked in. I lingered at the sight of it and forgot the old man was even there. He drummed his fingers on the truck door to get my attention. You stay the whole weekend, you hear? Starting tonight. I'll know if you don't. Trust me, he said, giving me the once-over again. He knew my next question before I could ask it. You don't need anything. You'll be proper stocked, but you should head over to the address soon. Read the notebook. Do as instructed, he said, before turning around and driving off. I watched the rear of the truck become a speck on the road, then went back to my car and counted off $2,000 in the envelope. Hot damn, that's eight grand a month, I muttered to myself. That money would be a life changer. Evelyn and I could move in together, get a patch of land and be real comfortable. I thought about calling her, but she was spending the night with family for her sister's wedding. She'd be there all weekend, and this was fixing to be a hell of a surprise when she got back. Eager to get on with the job, I looked at the notebook. It was the kind school kids use, but this one had a mummified cover, thick and cracked. So many pages had been torn out that it hardly contained any, and the torn page ends made the binding on the spine look like a party streamer. Inside was an address in six lines. One, key to the gate and the station door are on the keychain. Two, get to the station before sundown. Three, don't leave the station all weekend. Four, stay up until dawn. You can sleep during the day. Five, if anything approaches the station, you point it back where it came from. Six, only leave the station Monday morning at sunup. I looked up to see the sun hanging low in the sky. I didn't know what the hell he meant by station, or how I'd be expected to find it. I checked my phone to see I had about an hour to find the property. I took Texas Highway 16 north, turned east onto Ditto Road, then north on Rutledge. Rusting barbed wire fences bordered either side of the road, and the pockets of white prickly poppies, with their delicate white petals like dress hems, peppered the grass. There were many ranches out this way, their entrances secured with gates. These are often used to add some unique flair to the ranch and its owner. Perhaps a metal archway, topped with a bucking mustang or a Texas flag much like people do with bumper stickers or decals on their cars. One gate depicted a herd of horses mid-gallop, along with wreaths, stars, and what looked to be a child's handmade Christmas tree, 
that were either hung several months too early or late. The site was warm and inviting, but the signs posting private property made their visitation policy clear. Soon the houses grew fewer, with nothing but gnarled trees and low-hanging branches to decorate the landscape. Rutledge Cemetery came up on my left, its stone archway well protected under the shade of a massive live oak tree. Story goes that in the mid-1800s, a man by the name of Daniel Day lost his wife and two children on the property. Mr. Day reported they died in a mysterious fire, but no remains were recovered among the ashes. He never rebuilt, eventually deeding the land to the city of Poteet for use as a cemetery, so long as it was named with his wife's surname, Rutledge. A red corral gate blocked the route onto the property marked in the notebook. I entered, stopping only to secure the padlock on the gate behind me, and was surprised by how loud the locking mechanism was. Almost like the crack of a gun, or the hollow break of a cracked skull. I didn't like that image, and don't know why it came to me then, so I hurried back to my car. I followed the dirt road for some time before coming to what I assumed to be the station. Some station. It was little more than a gussied-up deer blind, with a large window that made up an entire wall. Inside, it was set up like a studio apartment, only laid out better than anything I've ever owned. A bed took up the far corner, and in the other was one of those composting toilets. Next to the bed was a wooden shelf with a camping stove, spare propane canisters, as well as a full-size fridge filled with all manner of food, water, and coffee. Stock proper was right, I thought. I was more than a little relieved to see a window AC unit installed above the bed, all the better to get through the blistering heat of the night. I set the security latch on the door and noticed several additional deadbolts as well as a horizontal security bar in the middle of the door. The glass wall overlooked a large patch of chest-high prairie grass, maybe thirty feet from me, that seemed to grow closer when the wind blew. I saw the station shadow grow longer and settled in for the night. I'd just brewed a pot of coffee when I heard an electrical switch click and the soft hum of electricity. High-powered outdoor lights illuminated the front of the station all the way to the prairie grass with enough light to turn night to day. Must have been on some sort of timer, I figured. Dinner was hamburger helper and the first of many cups of coffee, brewed strong like Daddy used to drink when he'd go hunting. My phone had about half battery, but would hold until morning if I didn't check it too often. I hadn't packed anything, but I had a car charger that I planned to use the next morning. The crickets started up, as did all the other night sounds, not long after dark. The hours ticked away steadily, and I busied myself going through all the supplies, making a mental inventory in the event I needed something. Always be prepared, Daddy used to say, which I thought was about the wisest thing anyone had ever said until I realized he had just bastardized the Boy Scout motto. I'd just moved a case of water when I realized it had gone dead quiet. No insect chirps. No wind. Just the hum of electricity through the lights. I felt something in the back of my head. Not on my skin, but inside my scalp, like tapping, and turned to face the window. Outside, lit up to high heaven against the harsh glare of the floodlights, was a woman with only rags for clothing. My first thought was that she was one of those Mexican illegals. Of course, they'd broken a law to get there, 
but who could fault them for wanting to get somewhere to live a better life? Things started clicking together in my head. The old man probably wanted to keep them off his property. Though, for two grand a week, you'd think he was storing gold here or something. I pulled away from these thoughts and examined the woman. She wasn't moving. She also wasn't wearing rags, like I first thought. The wrappings around her body were the deep tan of natural rawhide, and very close to the color of her skin. Crudely drawn images were etched along her shoulders. I grabbed a few bottles of water to offer her, but in the time it took me to look away, I could feel the prodding in the back of my head again, with the dull thud of a finger tapping on glass. I wrenched my head up, afraid somehow, I don't know why, that she'd somehow gotten in. But there she stood, outside, just over the grass line. Looking at her, the feeling stopped. She wasn't pleading. She wasn't moving any closer to the station either, looking for help, like you'd expect someone to do if they were lost or walking all day in the unforgiving sun. She looked old, not in age, but in time, the way you can recognize an old photograph. There are things out there that the world would like to forget. I got the feeling she was one of them. I snapped a few more deadbolts in place and stepped away from the window. She's not Mexican, I thought, but she don't look like she's supposed to be here either. The notebook sat on the shelf behind me. I groped for it, then pulled it close. I skimmed, stealing my eyes away from the woman just long enough to read each line before returning them to her. I got to line five again. If anything approaches the station, you point it back where it came from. Anything, it read. Not anyone. I whipped up a hand and pointed at her, in the direction I'd assumed she'd come. She did nothing, not so much as a nod. The wind pushed against the wooden walls, and the sound of a train whistle filled the station as it sought out cracks in the structure. The grass behind her split open, and she stepped back, her eyes still fixed to mine, until the grass snapped in place, and she was gone. Or at least, I could no longer see her. The night came alive again, but I felt little in the way of relief. I found a wooden chair and used it to prop the door shut and gave serious thought to using the fridge as a barricade. I'd never brewed coffee by feel, but I wouldn't take my eyes off the window again. There were no more visitors that night. Still, I stood as far away from the window as I could, checking my phone for the time, until the sky transitioned from gray to red, then the faded yellow of sunrise. The low cries of morning doves called out, their song low and warbling, sounding wounded and sorry, though not as much as I was to be there. Emboldened by the light of a new day, and overstimulated by coffee, I unlatched the door and stepped out. I was on edge, but I refused to give last night's event much merit. I figured I was unfamiliar with the area, and it made me nervous, set my mind running. I stepped out to do what I'd intended the day before with Edwin and survey the property. I started with the edge of the prairie grass, looking for signs of passage. There was nothing, no footprints, not even a single shoot of grass out of place. I followed in the direction the woman had retreated until I reached a clearing outlined in rock. Several stone mounds jutted out of this area, white and black, too big and heavy to be moved by nature alone. Burial mounds. There was no mistaking it. I'd seen some before. 
One Easter morning I'd strayed too far from the egg gathering and came across a rectangle outlined in pink and black stone. The air felt funny then, filled with something I couldn't see, like the feeling you get just before lightning strikes. Daddy had gone looking for me and ran, sprinting, towards me, whisking me away from it. When he ran out of breath, he slowed and put me down. Why were they there? I squeaked, my throat bone dry. Lot of reasons for cemeteries, he said. You bury the dead to remember not just those who have gone, but the things that took them, he gasped and pushed me back to the festivities. I gave the piles a wide berth, mindful of each step. It was a good thing, too, because I'd have stumbled into the open-faced pit otherwise. When my heartbeat slowed, I realized it was a natural cave, though daylight only reached but so deep. Standing there, I could hear the soft murmurs of echoes from deep below the surface, like holding a seashell to my ear. Only, instead of hearing the ocean, I could swear I heard whispering. I retraced my steps and didn't bother to check the rest of the property. I went back to my car and moved it closer to the station. I won't kid you and say I didn't think about driving off right there. I just shut off the engine when I was overwhelmed by sleep. My body grew heavy and my lids would not allow my eyes to stay open. I had just enough time to plug in my phone when my eyes shut. I awoke to a tapping on the driver's side door. There was no one on the other side, but relief gave way to panic when I saw a silhouette just outside the reach of the floodlights. Instinctively, I turned over the car, but the battery was dead. I looked out the driver's window to the station a few feet away, then back to the figure. It looked to be a man in modern clothing, jeans and a button-up shirt of white and gold, which was good enough for me, since I didn't want to be alone anymore. The man raised both arms above his head and waved at me frantically. I stepped out and approached him. If I think back hard enough, I remember things moving, but no sound, like the world was on mute. You're not supposed to be outside. It's in the notebook, the man told me. I know. I fell asleep and... Did Edwin send you? I asked. The man was nodding before I'd finished the question. You're needed, he whispered. Let me just call for... I started. No, you need to come now, the man said, and turned toward the swaying patch of grass. I hesitated, unsure if he was referring to the woman from the night before, since I was not too keen on a reunion. The man followed the path I'd taken earlier, and I found myself back at the rock mounds. He stepped around them, and I followed, but I could swear there was only the rhythmic sounds of my footfalls crunching through the grass. The man ahead of me seemed to make no sound at all. He stopped and joined several others in a circle at the mouth of the cave. There were three or four men wearing modern clothing, the woman in leather from the night before, and another woman and two children, a boy and a girl, all dressed in what looked to be their sleeping gowns. Down there, the man said. I started again. I really should call. The man turned from the cave and looked at me. Under the pale light of stars, his face was all shadow, and the skin was pulled tight over his forehead and cheekbones. He shook his head and said, They need you. His reasoning made perfect sense, somehow. I took a step closer. Then another. My foot hit loose gravel and the ground and sky were upturned. 
the opening of the cave grew further away as a tunnel of black swallowed me. The whispers returned, with truths to questions I didn't know needed answers. The figures. The makeshift burial ground. The ancient thing beneath the earth that sent out a siren call for sacrifice and would not be denied. And that's a wrap on season three. Y'all may notice that more and more time is passing between seasons. And that's because it takes a lot of time to write these and edit and re-edit. I've made that joke before, but my God, it takes a lot of editing and a lot of time to self-edit. I really do appreciate sharing these stories with you. And for those of you that are listening, it means something to be present. It means something to show up. So thank you. Season four should be here in December of 2022. Thanks for listening. Stay up to date by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, on Instagram at hdte.mp3, and my website, howdoesthisend.co. Support the show by sharing with friends, rate the episodes, or join the Patreon. Special thanks to producer Halice Clemens-Narvais and patrons Alex Cavazos, Linda Clemens, Liz Walker, Lucy McKay, Tiffany Wu, and Zans. Your support and belief fuel me. Artwork for this season comes from Diego Almasan. Diego is a bottomless well of creative energy and technical knowledge. He's a game developer, 2D artist, and has experience in too many areas to list here. Find him at Warped Core Studio on Instagram, on LinkedIn, or check out the game he developed from scratch, Aqualungers, available now on Steam and the Nintendo Switch. Music for this episode is from Epidemic Sound. The How Does This End podcast is a Stumblewell production and is brought to you for Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. Be well, do good, and until next time.